I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Book Off, the literary podcast with a difference, where two guests go head to head in a war of the words. I'm Joe Haddo and joining me today, a singer and songwriter who I've been a fan of since buying the CD single of Missing. The Todd Terry remix by Everything With The Girl back in the 90s. It's Tracy Thorne. Hello. Hello. And a journalist, broadcaster and author whose infectious enthusiasm for books has not really helped my book buying habit over the years, but I'm always glad of her recommendations. Hannah Beckham and welcome to you. Thank you. Lovely to see you both. Thank you for battling a cold to oh, be here as well, you. Tracy. We've all had it, haven't we? It's, yes. it's been one of those years. <laughs> all sharing our ailments <laughs> and, and our tips. Hopefully um, there won't be germs just kind of circulating <laughs> over the course of the next 40 minutes. No, because we've had them now. Yes, so we're, we're Okay, we're, we're and immune. you're nearly out. Of I'm, the... I'm coming out the other end, so we're all <laughs> nearly immune. And we've got sofa, cushions, it's warm in here. I think we'll be fine. Tracy, your third book, Another Planet, has just been published, mm. and this follows Naked at the Albert Hall and Bedsit Disco Queen. And it reflects on your time growing up in suburban Hertfordshire. Mm. And it, it's a brilliant read, really funny in places. I loved it. What, what made you want to revisit your teenage years? Well, the book actually grew out of an essay I started writing, which itself grew out of something I was asked to do and said no to. I was asked to contribute to a series of nature writing, you know, to choose some sort of feature of the landscape and write a short piece about it. And I said no, because I thought, I don't know anything about (laughs) mountains or forests or lakes or anything. So, but it sort of, it niggled away in my mind. And I thought, you know, but I do know about somewhere. I did grow up somewhere. And there is this suburban landscape, which um, is so reviled, really. It's not the city. It's not the proper countryside. And I thought, well, supposing I turn that kind of attention and look at it in detail. Um, so I started out just writing an essay that was much more focused just on the place mm. um, and almost, as I say, approaching it like a nature writer would, you know, trying to pay attention to it. And then it just grew and it turned into a story that, you know, began to include... Um, the characters who populated that time of my life, which meant my family. Mm. Because that's that's quite interesting, thinking of it like that, actually. Whereas we've had books like H's for Hawk and mm. The Outrun and things like that, where this this beautiful sort of nature writing was the forefront of, of a much more personal story. Yes. But these lush settings of what was being described, these landscapes, but the drives, the driveways that you describe yes. and those sort of like the houses that we can all picture. Well, it's... exactly. So many of us do live or grew up in those kind of yeah. landscapes. And, you know, if we're, if we're using landscapes in order to look for meaning, which is what you're doing in nature writing, really, you're seeing, well, how do humans connect to their landscape? Yeah. What does it mean? Well, then the landscape we all live in can't 
be ignored. No. And, and I think what's weird about where you grew up, Tracy, and I grew up very close to you, only about 10 miles away, is that you talk about it in the book. There's You're surrounded by fields, but you're not aware of any farming going on. No. And so it's kind of the countryside, but not rural. It's a very kind of weird hinterland yes. between being a kind of town surrounded by fields, but, as you say, no farming. No, and, it you know, it's it's not a village in that it grew up because people settled there and worked the land hundreds of years ago. It was only begun in the 1930s mm. and it was only built because there was a train station there. So it's just, it's a dormitory small town that was built just mm. to house people who were going to go and work in the city. That were going to go into London. Yes, right? and it was very planned. You know, it was part of the Garden City movement, this idealised notion that you could actually construct the perfect place in which to... It's very um, neat. It's a just a neatness to them, isn't there? Like There's an incredible neatness <laughs> and <laughs> all, a sense of control. <laughs> yes, a, a, a desire really to control, and that's where I suppose the frustration comes in when you're a teenager living there, because yeah. it, inevitably that becomes a bit repressive and it's all very conventional and if you don't sort of adhere to this perfect lifestyle that's been designed for you then it all goes wrong and the book rang true with you as well Hannah reading it didn't it hugely yeah. I mean uh you know all of all of the stuff about that kind of that sense that you are somewhere where not much is happening and probably not much will ever happen mm. I think there is something very kind of suburban about all the stranger danger stuff that we got told when we were kids. And yes. I was just reading your book, sort of nodding away, going, I remember being told all that stuff and being terrified of walking down the street because something terrible was going to happen. And statistically, it was probably never going to happen. <laughs> um, but you just got sort of infected with it, didn't you? Yes, there was a terrible sense all the time. And as I say, we weren't just warned about these things. We were shown these <laughs> horrific public information films to really hammer the point home. And they were like little mini horror films, mm. one of which I remember watching, which was about a child being abducted. Mm. There were other ones about not going on the ice on the pond, not going near electricity pylons. But all of this just gave you the impression that the outside world was basically out to get you. And so the message as a child I think you take from that is, well, I'd better just stay at home <laughs> or I'd better not yeah. venture outside my world. So everything's conspiring to sort of quash your curiosity and your adventurousness. You know, it's all trying to, you know, keep you in this one tiny mm. place. I longed to get to the city where I just thought you could be anonymous. Mm. You, could, yeah. you could do what you like. And it felt like the city was full of, you know, a diverse range of people doing a great variety of things, living different lives and no one paying any attention to each other. And that seemed to me a much more idealised lifestyle than this <laughs> tiny little place where everyone was supposed to be doing exactly the same thing and being exactly the same and everyone was watching each other to mm. check that they did. Hannah, your second novel has just been published and it's a really beautiful read, utterly heartbreaking in places. It's called If Only I Could Tell You and we hope that you can tell us a little <laughs> bit about Audrey and, and her two daughters. Yeah, so Audrey is in her early 60s and at the beginning of the novel she has been diagnosed with terminal cancer. And her two grown-up daughters, Jess and Lily, who are in their late 30s and early 40s respectively, have not spoken for 30 years and she doesn't know why. Um, they have both have a daughter each who have now teenagers who have never been allowed to meet. So the whole family is entirely fractured. Um, and before she dies, Audrey wants to get to the bottom of the schism and try and heal her estranged family. And this mother-daughter relationship that, that's explored, and it's explored in both your 
books, because of course you, Tracy, are talking about your actual mother. Um, who's actually called Audrey. Who's actually <laughs> called Audrey. Um, and Hannah, you, you have the characters of the, of the three generations in this family. And as you're both daughters and both mothers, I just wondered if you notice anything different in, in the way that your children are now compared to how you were growing up where you did in the 70s, 80s. I mean, we are just a much more emotionally literate, open generation now. So I talk to my six-year-old now about things that uh, I know my mum thinks are a bit too kind of grown up and old for her. But, you know, my husband and I have a view that she's a little person and she's perfectly capable of knowing and understanding things as long as we frame them in such a way that uh, makes them comprehensible to her, but actually that we are not going to have secrets and there are not going to be things that we simply don't talk about. I mean, there's there's the bit in your book, Tracy, when your mum is going through the menopause, but you don't actually know about it. And I was thinking about that this morning and, you know, that, you know, I'm 43, that will be coming upon me at some point. And if it happened tomorrow, it's inconceivable to me that I would not explain to my daughter that this thing was happening to me and I would explain what it was and that it happened to all women. And so I just think, you know, there is... My my mum was actually relatively open with me I think for her generation we had a book that we were given called How a Baby is Made that had pretty graphic pictures I have to say (laughs) of people having sex in it like little character sort of cartoon drawings Um, so I think uh, we we were relatively open but I think there is such a shift now between how we are with our children to the generation before. Yes I think the difference is enormous I'm ahead of you so I've had the experience now of my kids going through their teenage years so I have had the experience now of being, you know, exactly the same age my parents were in the book I've just yeah. written mm. about them and the experience of having teenagers. And I suppose I was determined not to make the same mistakes. I may well have made different mistakes, but <laughs> I haven't made the same ones. It's... But the secrecy thing seems to me very much a part of it. And you're right, we do just talk to each other much more. Mm. Um, you know, my kids have been through their ups and downs and there have been difficult moments but in my teenage years those things led to either long silences in which things weren't mentioned or then a blazing row whereas my experience has been that when something difficult's come up you know we've just sort of said come on let's go and sit down at the kitchen table let's make a cup of tea let's talk this through Mm. tell me what you're thinking what you're feeling why has this happened let's have a chat Mm. and it's just meant from it's led to a much more harmonious experience for all of us well i think we uh, our generation may be much more when we were teenagers we just internalized a lot more yes so mm. we we took it on board in a kind of you know quite a sort of heavy emotional baggage kind of yeah. way we felt frustrated we've got more depressed mm. um we kind of held on to it in a way that was probably quite unhealthy for us and i think the whole atmosphere around us was about still being caught up in that stiff upper lip attitude yeah. that you had to either breeze on through something or completely repress it mm. so my mum suffering from her menopause symptoms and the sort of emotional mood swings that brought went to her gp and was put on tranquilizers mm. whereas now i think yeah. if you go to your gp you might talk about hrt which okay wasn't around then but at the same time they might talk to you about have you thought about downloading a mindfulness app onto your yes. phone <laughs> how about doing some yoga you know walking's very good talk to people there'd be all those things but i don't think any Anyone ever suggested that no, to my mum? No. They just said, "Here, have some Valium, and then have some more." <laughs> yeah, and off you go. Thank off you very you much. Go. You're talking about your your children there and being quite open. And on your album "Love and Its Opposites," which I remember from a few years ago, there's this track called "Hormones," mm. which I absolutely loved when I when I first heard it. And I remember thinking at the time, this is sort of like the perfect description of a mother watching her children grow up. And I assume that was about your daughters. Yeah, at the time, very right? much. And and just what you're saying there, it's that 
time when I think there's there's the line that says, you know, yours yours are just checking in, mine are just checking out, and that, yeah. and it's that weird sense of of looking at like, oh yeah, I remember being that age, yes. 12, 13, and now I'm here. And there, is there is there a sense of you you start realizing what what your mum and your parents were probably going through at that time once your own children are going very much it. so I think the experience of having kids is very illuminating in terms of your feelings about your own parents and that can be a, a good thing I, I definitely got closer to both my parents after having kids perhaps because I came to a greater understanding of you know the reasons why they'd done things I, I still remained quite firm in my opinion that they had done a lot of things wrong and I didn't want to do everything the same mm. but I suppose I just had a bit more insight into why things had, had gone that way for them yeah yeah I think you can be more generous yeah as a child as an adult child towards yeah. your parents when you become a parent yourself can't yeah. you you, you suddenly... just realize they're just adult human beings trying yeah. to muddle along and it's do this parenting hard. thing <laughs> yeah, exactly yeah. and that's why in, in in your book hannah that you know the the fact that the siblings are are not talking and the you see it from all these sides that there's lots of tension in in the book and as you're reading it i've i found myself feeling for all characters and trying to sort of go oh we can work it out were you wanting us as readers to take sides with any of the characters or were you meant to sort of be watching it from from above? No, I mean, like, that is kind of basically music to my ears, saying that kind of, you know, the, the, the sort of best feedback I've had from kind of early readers so far is every chapter that you read, you are kind of championing that mm. character and supporting that person, then you have your mind completely changed and flipped in the next chapter. Um, I want you as the reader to to be... I guess to be as kind of discombobulated as Audrey is as to what's going on and why this has happened um, and to have all of the same kind of speculations and um, suspicions about what might have happened and hopefully be proved wrong by the mm. time you get to the end. Mm. That sounds great. I love books where you change your opinion about <laughs> characters as you go along, I think, because that's very true to life, isn't it? I yeah. think you do constantly have your perceptions and Sometimes things challenged exactly and <laughs> yeah. what you think you know about someone is then undone by what you then find out yeah. i think that's really fascinating in books <laughs> and like you say in, in each chapter it's it can change between just a few pages mm. when you're reading your book and that's that's a bit of a roller coaster as a reader isn't it because you're a bit like oh, hang on well, oh, hang. And, well i hope so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but i was thinking about when i read your your first book your, your debut novel and how you tapped into that emotion of like family life and the, and a specific emotion around families, mm. and there's something about that because I remember reading it just being in tears, and this one again, you know, it's really heartbreaking. I was like, thanks a lot, Hannah. You know, <laughs> God, but what is it about? If there is anything about that that particular emotion, because it's it's a lo- it's a certain type of love that you seem to tap into, and you obviously seem quite interested in because both books mm. have focused on that family emotion well it's interesting I mean I think lots of lots of novelists have their sort of thing their theme that they will probably return to again and again and again and for me it's family and sort of dysfunctional family relationships which are nonetheless kind of surrounded by a kind of deep sense of love and purpose Um, and I I get quite cross when people are slightly sniffy about novels about family particularly those written by women, um, which people can tend to be. Because for me, you know, all of our templates for relationships and the kind of person we are going to be 
or the kind of person we're going to rebel against being, mm. are set when we are children. That is where we learn how to love people, how to negotiate people with people, how to compromise, how to be a good friend. You know, that within the family, with our mum and our dad and our siblings or whatever, you know, whatever the family makeup is, that is where we learn how to conduct our relationships and the kind of person we're going to be. You know, are we going to be a kind of responsible taxpayer? Are we going to be someone who contributes to society? All of that is set in those really formative years. So for me, the family is the kind of template for the people we are going to become as adults in society. And therefore, looking at what happens in families is kind of key to working out the kind of society that we have and the kind of people we have. So really kind of focusing on that kind of microcosm of very intense relationships where people you know, often misunderstand each other and often misread each other is, for me, a kind of microcosm of what we do in society for the rest of our lives. You know, the interesting thing that, that means you can write about families endlessly, I think, is because their relationships are so complex. Yeah. Because you just have this group of people who, through sheer chance have to all live together yeah. a lot of the time. And they might have incredibly different opinions so that, you know, again, you wouldn't necessarily choose them. You wouldn't, they wouldn't be the friends you'd hang out with. And yet there they are. They're the people you've grown up with. And that teaches you a massive lesson yeah. about yes. what human relationships consist of, yes. that you can have strong, you know, positive emotions towards someone that you violently disagree with. Mm. You can love someone and hate someone. Um, at you can the love same someone time. hate someone at the same time, yeah. which and all, seems to me the key. <laughs> yes, yeah. But you have yeah. to learn that, that that we have mixed feelings about things and about people, yes. and that that's just normal. And yeah. the ambivalence is kind of is part of human relationships absolutely. and part of absolutely. human nature. And I yeah. suppose the other thing is that you know you can put four people in exactly the same house and exactly the same setting and exactly the same circumstances. You know, your next door neighbours yes. in Brooklyn's Park. But they will have a completely different experience to yours, and yes. and, and their external circumstances could be identical. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I guess it's the same thing, you know, with twins. You know, you have twins, and everyone says, "Oh, you know, twins are going to grow up to be the same." No, mm. they're not. They're, yeah. Even identical twins are going to be fundamentally different. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, you often hear that thing about where parents have got more than one child and one might be off the rails and one might be you know the perfect kid and they're just like I don't understand I did exactly the same with both of them it's like of course you didn't you can't ever do exactly the same with two children in the same house even if they were born 10 minutes apart their experience of that family will not be the same yeah exactly I mentioned the diary entries and I just want to to return to these (laughs) because they're so I've just found them so sweet and just so funny in places yes. and the way that you sort of talk about them. So I just wondered if, if we could reflect on that. These, these are entries from the late 70s through the 70s yes. when you were a teen and um, they're quite short and sort of to the point, aren't they? Yes, I mean, I, I kept diaries from about, from I think starting in 1976 through to me leaving home in 1981. But a lot of the time they were those little mini pocket diaries. Mm. So you've got sort of, um, you know, like an, an inch of of space <laughs> to write your entry and given that I felt that most days I had to include what I'd had for lunch and what time I went to bed that didn't leave much room for any and emotional what you watched on TV quite what a lot. I watched on TV featured a lot and the weather yeah. Um, yeah so yes you get these very specific entries which when I came back to read them for this you know are such a brilliant source of raw material because here it is unvarnished yeah. um, as it was written although the more I began to read them the more I th- I found 
there were sort of layers of resonance to it. That on the one hand, here it is, the raw, unvarnished truth. And at the same time, there are levels of deception going on because there were things I didn't write in my diary, <laughs> yeah. secrets I kept even from who? Myself. Um, like the so, blank page. Yes, there's a blank page one day when I just didn't write it down at all because it was a bit well, I didn't know how to write that down. <laughs> um, but that's very rich and interesting for a writer, obviously. Yeah. You know, you've got here, even in something like a diary that's not being written for any particular reader, there's still something about the act of writing which is all about deciding what to say I, lo- I love who's diaries. editing out and who's saying what I just yeah. find I think I keep one but not a journal diary mm. I just keep all my diaries but they've they've got massive awful scrawl of my handwriting of just you know 2pm meet Hannah or whatever yes. you know and that's it I don't I don't write notes no. or I don't sort of do the whole day thing but I keep them all and very occasionally look back and go oh yeah because it because I go I forgot I met that yes. person or I forgot yeah. I did that thing or that I went to France for that weekend, just simple things. And I, I just, I'm quite fascinated by the fact you can bring back that exact thought just from looking at, well, in my case, some awful scrawl on a page, you know. <laughs> no, it's great to have, have things noted down. And, you know, it, it reminds you of, of things you'd forgotten. And then, as I say, there are other instances where there are things I do remember, and yet I would sort of search for them in the diary and they're not mm. there. Mm. So there's such a strange mixture of truth and lies yeah. and openness and... <laughs> Secrecy. Um, but there is something oh, interesting as well, isn't there? Because, I mean, it's a very... Lots of people keep teenage diaries, but yeah. then they sort of peter out in their kind of late teens or yes. early 20s. And I do wonder kind of the extent to which, when you're a teenager, part of that keeping a diary is just sort of feeling like you want to be noticed, yeah. even in your own world. There's a kind of sense of wanting to make yourself feel a bit more tangible, almost. There's something about writing something down as well that gives it some sort of importance. <laughs> yes. You know, OK, I, I, I had roast lamb for lunch and I went to bed at 9.30 and that matters because it does matter to me. You know, it, yeah. it's nothing, but it's... No, but it um, is, but, but it, it is. is. You know, and it was it's then. It's my life. It was then. Did you did you ever keep a, a diary like that? I, I kept diaries. That, I mean, there were two things that I sort of reflected on having read Tracy's book. The first was that even though Tracy thinks that her teenage years in Hertfordshire were quite boring mine were actually even more boring because at least Tracy made it out every Saturday to Hatfield or St Albans and like bought face packs and tights I didn't even really manage that I think I just spent my entire teenage years pretty much mooching around the house Um, but I think my I wouldn't I would find it very hard I do have them all in the loft at home I would find it quite hard to go back to them because I think mine are, are that kind of outpouring of angst and depression mm. and anxiety and just endless you know they they were not diaries they were notebooks right. so I okay. had free reign to just yes. write you know a thousand words of kind of outpourings of teenage anxiety mm. the and beginnings I, I of being bear. a writer <laughs> Oh, yeah. Hopefully, we'll find a little bit in the last. She learned years. about editing. <laughs> yeah, she learned about editing exactly. Yeah, really and sentence structures and various other. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Things, yeah. <laughs> now, you're both here to do the book off as well, which I mentioned earlier. And I know, Tracy, I sort of threw this at you a bit late in the day. This is where you get to to bring and talk about a book that you absolutely love, that you think everyone should read. Each yes. of you is going to get three minutes on the clock, and you don't have to use it if you don't want to. But at that three-minute mark, I will be cutting you off with either a bell or a horn. So... <laughs> It's brutal. Uh, it's pretty brutal. <laughs> yes. Yeah, you know. Also, I, I've noticed over past episodes that at this point when I sort of, we've been having a nice chat, sat on the sofa, and then I say, right, we're going to do the, you can see everyone bristles. <laughs> everyone sort of sits up, they go, oh, Careful. goodness well, me. Suddenly it's a bit nervous. We're having a nice conversation. You suddenly introduced a competitive element yes, to the proceedings. I know. I know. What a way to finish, you know. Is there a prize? Uh, <laughs> p- pride. Pride. Oh. Yeah. Um, my, I had a question. You know the whole thing about you get, you know, which book are you going to take mm. home? Mm. I, I'm not actually going to let you have my copy of my book. I just wanted to make that clear. <laughs> no, that's is, okay. That's okay. No, you it's, can't have my copy of my book because I'm still reading it. Because you're, you're rereading it. That's so. where I'm at. <laughs> I promise not to take the actual copies. I promise. Before we, we get into the nitty gritty, <laughs> Hannah, tell us which book you're going to be talking about. I have chosen The Vanishing Act of Esme Lennox by Maggie O'Farrell. Mm-hmm. And Tracy, what? book have you brought? I have chosen The Secret History by Donna Tartt. Excellent. Right. So two fab I books. Think, I think we have chosen rather well today. And I think you have chosen very well. <laughs> and I'm going to get the uh, the timer out. Now, Hannah, would you like mm. to go first or second? I honestly don't mind. Let me go first because you're going to have more to say. <laughs> you want to go first. Okay, so you I'll get go mine over with. Tracy, you're going to go first. Hannah, would you I'm like to be um, <laughs> rung out or would you would you like a bit of that? Uh, I'll I'll have a honk. You're going to have the honk. I'll have okay. a honk. That means Tracy, you're going to get the bell. So do we do we get to see the stopwatch? Yes, I will okay. put the clock there Brilliant. for you. I would suggest not not focusing too much on it because it can be it can put you off. Right? Okay. Just saying. I'm not going to pay any. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it's over to you then, Tracy. Three minutes on the clock to tell us about secret history. So I've chosen the secret history, which. It's a book that I suspect most people have probably read. So I'm not sitting here saying, let me tell you about this book you've never heard of. Clearly, it was a smash hit. And um, I read it, as did everyone else when it came out, 
25 years ago. So I'm rereading it. I picked it up recently thinking, I loved that book so much. I wonder how well it bears to rereading. And it's fascinating because it's partly a murder mystery novel, and yet it's not a whodunit because you know from the very beginning someone's been murdered and these people have murdered it. It's set in a college in Vermont. Um, The narrator is a kind of outsider figure who becomes friends with this group of slightly eccentric classics students who are all a little bit odd and a bit obsessive and, I mean, reading it now, they come across as these slightly Jacob Rees-Mogg-type characters who sort of create this bizarre um, style of themselves in the way that they talk and the way they dress and they're a bit obsessive. And so a crime has happened, but you don't really know why. So that's the sort of mystery that has to be unravelled. Now, I'm reading it at the moment and I'm only halfway through. So... I know when you're talking about a murder mystery, you might think, well, no spoilers. I actually can't give you any spoilers because I can't remember the end, (laughs) um, which is rather brilliant, I think. I remembered how much I loved the book from before, which made me want to reread it, but I can't remember the conclusion. Um, So that's fascinating to me as I'm reading it. I'm remembering the thing that's amazing about it, which is that it's an incredibly atmospheric book. A lot of it takes place in the winter and it often seems to be snowy or gloomy and this this incredible sense of isolation so you almost have this feeling that these characters are in this little sort of world of their own the outside world doesn't really seem to intrude and that's why I think they've got caught up in this strange obsessive style of behavior which has led to this bizarre crime um, it's also got echoes I think in the um, narrator figure of sort of Nick Carraway in The Great Gatsby or it reminded me again of, of Charles Ryder in Brideshead where it's someone who actually comes from a more humble background gets absolutely seduced by these people who are flashier and richer and classier than him and in this case gets drawn into something, you know, horrific. And I think it's quite Patricia Highsmith who I love because it's got that psychological tension where it's just all about anxiety and are you going to get caught rather than what's the solution to the mystery it's are you going to get caught Um, so yes I'm going to read on and find out what happens because I can't remember but that's why I love it (laughs) oh fantastic look at that just under the wire there just under the wire do you know it's very we'll talk about this a bit more but I I don't reread lots of books no partly because I think I'm underread in so in, in so many ways that I there's there's loads that I need to get to. But this one I have reread. It's one right. of the few that I have ah. reread. And so it's very interesting you say because a lot of what you're saying, mm. and I know you're only halfway through the reread, mm. um, was exactly what <laughs> was was what I was thinking when I went back to it a couple of years ago. Yeah. Uh, but we'll talk more about that okay. in a moment. Very good. You can relax now. Also can I just say I just love the fact that you don't remember because I don't remember anything in books no. from like <laughs> Literally five minutes after I finished. Well, it's, that's I mean, why I'd... it's so difficult to do something like this, and that's why I thought I'm just going to go for the book I'm reading now because it's the only one that's really fresh in my mind. That Everything happens, else though. is a blur. It's the same with the question: What have you been reading recently? Or what have you loved yes. recently? I've got a clue. Well, well, I, I do actually. I do actually keep a reading diary yeah, now. Oh, do you, oh, my do only I need other to start doing that do now. Is I do actually note down and at least write a few lines. Roughly. Oh, you actually write about the book? A tiny bit, that's not very loads. Sensible. But I do write a little tiny bit, mm. and it is lovely. I've only done it for two years, but it's really nice flicking back through it and 
But it's so, so weird, like that, that whole thing where people say, what have you read recently that you like? And yeah. I know that there are kind of three or four books in the last couple of months that I've really liked. I know. And I can't remember what no, they are. No, me neither. It's so weird. Well, diary. I need to start keeping it on my phone so that I have it there all yes, the time. And I like, I like the idea of a little line as well yeah. underneath, just to, just to yeah. re- remind you. Uh, right, Hannah, over to you. Three minutes back on the clock, and it's uh, over to you to tell us about the vanishing act of Esme Leonard. So this is quite simply one of the most sublimely written and profoundly moving novels, I think, in recent memory. It tells the story of Esme Lennox, who, at the beginning of the novel, is living with her parents in India in the 1920s. Her parents are at best disinterested and at worst neglectful. They are cold and unaffectionate and Esme is basically brought up by servants. And right from the outset, Esme is not the compliant, well-behaved, seen-and-not-heard little girl that her parents want her to be. She is imaginative and willful and she has real spirit. You know, she's academically gifted, she's naturally creative, she's the kind of girl we would want our daughters to be but this is 100 years ago so they didn't Um, and when Esme and her sister Kitty are teenagers they move from India back to Edinburgh and while Kitty throws herself wholeheartedly into finding a husband Esme does not so she's taken to these dances she refuses to talk to anyone she sits in the corner and shock horror reads books instead Um, but then something really really horrific happens to Esme and because she is not the kind of conventional girl that Edwardian society wants her to be her parents have her locked up in a lunatic asylum at the age of 16 and she is left there for the next 60 years. And Esme's story is intercut with that of her great-niece, Iris, in the present day, who knows nothing about Esme's, Esme's existence until she gets a phone call one day to say the lunatic asylum is closing down and you, as the next of kin, even though you don't know she exists, have to come and sort of decide where she's going to live next. And Iris and Esme are very similar in their characters And when they get together and learn about each other's lives, a whole can of worms is opened up about their shared history. And it leads to a conclusion of a novel which is simply one of the most kind of quietly chilling and devastating endings to a novel I've ever read. And there were just so many things to love about this book. I mean, firstly, it is just... Esme is just a beautiful literary creation. She is so real and multifaceted and stoic. Um, The book is beautifully written. There is not a wasted word. Um, It's completely devoid of sentiment and yet it is really really emotionally affecting um, and what Maggie O'Farrell does is just portray that underbelly of upper middle class society so brilliantly so under this respectable veneer we've got murder and rape and hypocrisy and violence and you know really horrible sex and it's just you know she just does that brilliantly um, and I think one of the most devastating things of all for me is that this act- these things actually happened in the 20th century to women you know as a husband or father if you want to get rid of your wife you could get a decent doctor to say they were mad and get them locked up and that was it they were done for so this to me is a really kind of important chapter in women's history so it's a fiercely feminist novel um kind of before the me too generation but very relevant post me too um it is you know it's narratively gripping emotionally devastating stylistically perfect and politically an important book That was under the wire as well, just with a few seconds to spare. It's like you, it's like you both Sentence. knew exactly what you were doing. <laughs> Goodness me. 
right, another brilliant pitch. I mean, we're all Maggie O'Farrell fans here, aren't we? Yes. We all we all love Maggie. And can I just say this copy? So this copy is actually this. The reason you're not going to have it is because mm. it's actually signed by Maggie from the very first time I met her years ago, and it was when I just published my first novel and I was really struggling with my second. And I basically just kind of before we were friends, I just splurged to her this whole thing about I'm never going to do a second <laughs> novel. And she was so kind and gave me all this advice and wrote, you know, in my book about you know be true to yourself. Mm. And I just love her. Her writing is sublime. So when was this published then? This was 2006. 2006. Yeah, it's a long time yeah. ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, I say a long time ago. Well, you know, I just mean <laughs> we read a lot of books that Not are out. Well, yes, yes. You know, from the last few years. So to go back to something like 2006. And obviously um, Donna Tartt's back from that's, the this 90s. Was, that's a long of, time ago, isn't it? Yeah. I did look it up, actually, when I started. I was trying to remember how long ago it was. And it was published in 92. 92, goodness. Me too, too, because (laughs) I would have said this is quite a recent book. It's early 90s. It's early 90s. Hannah, you touched on so much there in that in that book, and and just in those three minutes, I you know, I think anyone listening would go, wow, you get all that in that one book. And it's not even a fat book. It's not even a huge book. It's only sort of 260 pages long. It's a, you know, it's a read it in a Sunday book. Well, she's, I mean, I haven't actually read that one, but I have read other Maggie O'Farrell's and she is incredibly readable, isn't she? So, you know, she can pack an awful lot in. Because her prose is so economical. She can say in one sentence what most writers would take two or three pages to say. And there are scenes in her books that I can remember. She's very vivid, I think. Mm. There's a drowning scene isn't there I think in well, the hand the... that first held mine which just stayed with me ever since mm. it's so vivid yeah and and you said actually you know not a word wasted and I think that is that's her style that's yes. what she does yes. so well um, Donna Tartt on the other hand <laughs> Donna Tartt well, well Donna Tartt's pretty big isn't it here you know she's not the most economical of writers and this is 519 pages. Mm. But, that's why you know, you're only I halfway think, through. That's why I'm only halfway through it. But she is great, I think, at, d- at doing almost the opposite, mm. which is, right, let's really get, let's indulge this. Would you that, know, let's, let's yeah. draw this out. Let's look at it from every possible angle. And, and that's what nuance. you said, because the, the atmosphere in that yeah. book, which is what I, the, in the reread, it's what yes. I really noticed more, actually, was those, those longer descriptions to just yeah. talk about the place and the college and the snow and you everything. You do really you know. feel like you're in this... Slightly indefinable location, and yet yes. she is very precise about it. And yet, what she creates is somewhere that doesn't feel quite real, mm. um, which is an, an odd thing, you know, because I suppose it's such an unfamiliar sort of landscape and pretty exclusive. I mean, she is talking about being at this quite exclusive college, yeah. you know, in a very isolated, snowy landscape, and it does feel slightly fantastical. Yeah, and as it you does, say, the, yeah. there is that kind of just unnerving kind of clashing of cultures, isn't it? That, yeah, that the, the person who desperately wants to be taken inside this kind of you know um kind of very sort of exclusive group yes but but you you as the reader know it's probably not going to end up well yeah <laughs> yeah from from the off the fact really. that on page one they tell you they've yeah. murdered someone <laughs> it's a kind of they're a bit murdery aren't they from, oh, a little bit you know. murdery but you get you know you you really know them i think and i think she uses that first part of the book to really get you to know everything about them you know yes. and i can picture them Right down to the cl- sort of clothes they would wear and not. Well, and I was. I mentioned actions. on Twitter the other day that I was reading it again, and immediately people started replying saying how much they'd loved it, and also talking about how wouldn't you love to just cast the film? Because there has never been a film made, no. it, although it's, it seems Why like has a very there film. Never been a film. No one's very sure. Everyone was positing different theories <laughs> that that maybe it, she didn't want she didn't to, want to sell yeah. the rights or whatever. Um, but I think everyone has 
had fun thinking about of who their, would the cast. Play. Yeah. Um, who was it yours? Is. Well, lots of people were saying Philip Seymour Hoffman, sadly, who couldn't now, but yes. if it had been mm. made nearer the time, I think he would have been great in one of the roles. Um, I find it hard to cast now because it would have to be young actors. <laughs> who are they? <laughs> who are they all? <laughs> Could have casted 25 years ago. If we'd cast it in 1992, yes. we would have a good <laughs> idea, wouldn't it. we? Um, also, Hannah, in, in, in your pitch, I, I, I love the reference to be, you know, it being a feminist novel and mm. story and actually quite early on in, in, in the general scheme of that Me Too movement and yeah. breaking through. And that, that although it's obviously a fictional story that this this sort of happened that this yeah. was actually happening I mean, it is, it, it's, it's quite it's, remarkable isn't it is it? it is remarkable that i mean it, it was happening in the sort of like 1940s and mm. 1950s i think Gosh. that you could still do it it was a way to get rid of you know kids that you girls that you didn't want around mm. but more often why you know men would fall in love with someone else and want to find a way to get rid of their wives and mm. that would be that would be one of the ways mm. oh, mad. well i've got a i've got a Take one home. Not actually. Uh, I've got to make a decision because I set myself up for this every time. I mean, I absolutely, I, I do love um, the Donna Tartt book and, and I, I have reread it. And as I said, that is, a, that is a, not something I do often. And I love Maggie and this book, you know, packs so much into so little. But I've got to base it on, on the pictures and I've got to go with today. Maggie O'Farrell is going to win today. <laughs> for the fact that uh, it's, a, it's a bit shorter. <laughs> so, shallow. I, so shallow. I do actually keep this book, this copy, on my desk all the time, and um, I usually reread it before I start a new draft of a book. Like you know, not a little draft, but a kind of another big restructural draft. And occasionally, I will just pick it up and just like read a page and yes. just go, "That's how, that's it, how know, it's done. That's how it's supposed mm. to be done." You'll never do it like that. Well, just but dip into yeah, literally just a page, just yeah. to kind of. And I, I sort of, I think I have this weird thing that just of somehow by some weird osmosis, if I have it on my desk, yes. I will, it, mm. I will kind of take on the channel some inner Maggie. I think that's right. <laughs> I think that is. Yeah, I think that would work. Would, would there be um, any more? books that you're thinking of rereading Tracy any others that you're thinking oh I'd quite like to revisit that from the um, 90s I hadn't thought of any mm. I actually pulled Dracula off the shelf a couple of days ago which I have never read uh. um, and there was a copy of out there and I pulled that down thinking so I might actually read that next that would be that a good one to go to choice. I could go on from, yeah. from Secret History to Dracula <laughs> would work quite well I think. quite a segue yeah. isn't it do you reread because I just I very feel... rarely reread me, me I mean I, I I rarely read anything purely for pleasure because everything mm. is just on that roller coaster of review mm. sharing yes. you know so I, it's, I, I'm maybe once a year I get to read a book that I've chosen wow but, yeah. yeah. I've often been scared before that I read books at a certain time. Yes. And I loved it and I love the memory of it and I won't like I, I just won't be the same again, you know. I can't read for me Catcher in the Rye was such a seminal mm. adolescent text that mm. I read when I was about 14. And for years I used to like until I was in my 30s I was still saying it's my favorite book of all time. Mm. I don't reread it because I might not love, love it as much as I did then. Yeah. I'm the same with On the Road by Jack Kerouac, <laughs> yeah. which I adored as a teenager, and I think I would probably absolutely hate now. But <laughs> I had to write something recently about my favourite sort of or most influential books, and I put it in there, just saying I'm just going to be honest yeah. and admit that it was so important to me, and I I don't reread it because yeah. I do suspect I would hate it. Yeah, no, I think I think um, that's but... that's partly it. I I think a lot of people, as you say, will have read the Donna Tartt, mm. but if if they haven't. It comes highly recommended from all of us in here, I think. Absolutely. But uh, but Maggie takes the trophy today, I think, oh, for nice. the vanish vanishing act of <laughs> Esme Lennox. And thank you both so much for joining me. It's been an absolute pleasure to thank, talk about your you. books, to talk about 
suburbia and motherhood. Another Place by Tracy Thorne is published by Canongate, and If Only I Could Tell You by Hannah Beckerman is published by Orion, and they're both out now, and they're both bloody brilliant, so you should go and add them to your wish list. Hannah, Tracy, thank you so much. Thank Thank you. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.